Hey everybody, welcome back to the Principal Podcast. Today's guest is Reggie Rivers. Um, Reggie's got a pretty diverse background that I'll let him dive into in a sec here, but um, the reason that I wanted to talk to him is because of goal setting and achieving your goals, right? So we're always taught, write down your goals in a notebook each morning or listen to affirmations about your goals and that's how you can achieve them. But Reggie did a TED talk a few years ago that completely ignores this conventional wisdom and advises people to do the exact opposite. And today, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. So Reggie, um, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and uh, feel free to dive in and just give us a little uh, overview of your background. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate you having me. I'm Reggie Rivers. I'm a former Denver Broncos running back, played for the Broncos for six years back in the 1990s. Uh, Before that, I was at Texas State University. Um, grew up down in San Antonio in a mostly military family, and so we moved around quite a bit, but spent most of our time in Texas. Um, I have, after my NFL career, I became a broadcaster, so I worked in radio, TV, and newspaper uh, for about 20 years. I've written six books, and I'm a motivational speaker, and I, I love the topic of goal setting, and the TED Talk that you're referring to, the title was, If You Want to Achieve Your Goals, Don't Focus on Them. And it is counterintuitive, and we can get more into that as we go along. Awesome, awesome, Reggie. I'm excited. I I think uh, you you know two things. One, you've got a really diverse background. I mean, you played in the NFL, then you went into broadcasting and radio and TV, and you've written six books, as you mentioned. So that's awesome, and and we definitely want to cover all of that. But also, uh, it seems like you know you're not only a motivational speaker just because you have a good personality for it. You've actually accomplished quite a bit in your life. So um, let's let's dive in. How so? So talk a little bit about your time on the Denver Broncos, if you could. Sure. Um, you know, to play. NFL football is the dream of a lot of young people. And so, of course, I dreamed of that when I was a kid. But even as a kid, I was pretty realistic. So I didn't actually dream about playing in the NFL. I just kind of vaguely thought, hey, it'd be cool to play in the NFL. It wasn't until I was 22, my senior year in college, that a scout came in and said, hey, you're having a great year. You keep this up. You might be able to play at the next level. And I was an undrafted free agent. So I went to the Denver Broncos and tried out. And it was the joy of, of my life. It was such an adventure. I was around some of the most accomplished, talented people I have ever been around in my entire life. Some of the most confident, physically confident. Like, you know, we know we know p- confident people, but I met <clears throat> some guys who were just so confident about what their bodies could do physically that it was astounding. It was like, wow. And I just feel like I learned a lot from being in the NFL. I learned about a lot about what great players look like, what's the difference between them and the rest of us. I I learned a lot about leadership and how coaches lead when they have, in some cases, they have very little authority, like a position coach has very little authority, but a lot of power. And, you know, just understanding how is it that people lead through that. So, you know, for me, being in the NFL was just really a lot of fun to get to play this game and and a lot of learning on on many different levels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sounds like being surrounded by um, people who, you know, were obviously disciplined and were obviously motivated, but that environment kind of uplifted you further, um, in your, in your professional career. I would definitely say so. Cause we all know what we are personally doing, but it's not until you meet other people and you see what they're doing. And especially if you see somebody who's, who's similar to you in many ways, but they're doing a little bit better than you are. And you're like, 
why is this guy stronger than me in the weight room? What's he doing that I'm not doing? We're, we're the same. Why is this guy faster than me? Why is this guy a better blocker than me? And you start to, you know, understand the difference between you and them. And sometimes you realize, well, it's just God given talent that this guy has. And I don't have, I can live with that. You know, I can live with the reality. I'm not going to be able to outrun Usain Bolt. That's, that's a reality. Um, but then sometimes you realize, oh, I've got some habits that he doesn't have that are holding me back, or he has some habits that I don't have that are holding me back. And so I think the NFL was a great place for me to really incubate these thoughts and, and learn from those guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the beginning of, of when you, when you first started describing your, um, like how you, how you got into your professional career of, of playing in the NFL, you said that, you know, you grew up playing football, but it wasn't necessarily your goal. And it's funny that you say that because, you know, of the whole goal setting conversation and the Ted talk that you delivered. So what were, I mean, was it truly like when you were a kid, you were just like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to work hard every day. I'm going to, I'm going to be in the weight room. I'm going to stay extra for practices and and do all these things, eat right, et cetera. Um, with, with no goal of actually playing in the NFL, you just wanted to, you know, see how good you could be or, or what was it? Yeah, I the the basic premise of my TED talk is that goals are things that are largely outside of our control. And for for the sake of your audience, a simple way to think about what's in your control or what's not in your control, everybody snap your fingers. Okay, if you snap your fingers, that's something that's in your control. Raise your hand. Blink your blink one eye. All of those things are are behaviors. Those are things that are directly in your control. You can do it. You don't need the help of anyone else. Goals is everything else. Anything that you want to achieve, but you can't do it right now. If I said, everybody lose five pounds, right? That's not something that you can just do on the spot. That makes it a goal. It's outside of your control. We tend to think that we have more control over the future than we do because we have calendars. We make, we buy plane tickets. We make hotel reservations. We plan to go on vacation. We're going on vacation in June. It's only March. We're going on vacation. But we know intuitively that anything can happen between now and March and June to stop that from happening. Pandemic could surge up again. We could get sick. We could die. Anything could happen between now and then. So we don't actually have control over these things that happen in the future. So your question for me is, what did I do to keep myself motivated? I have I set goals, but they're very short. They're like, I had goals about I want to do well this week in my game on Friday night when I was in high school. And so I've got to work hard on Wednesday. I've got to work hard on Thursday. I'm not thinking about the NFL. I'm thinking about having a good game this week. And then the next week, I'm trying to think about how do I have a good game this week? How do I get all my homework done this week? How do I do the things that are in my immediate presence? And to me, that's the secret to achieving your goals long term. You have to keep your focus really short on on the behaviors that you're going to act on mm-hmm. that's that's really interesting that's the the way you put it there because um at least in school or, or from like my own personal mentors i've always been taught you know you want to think six months out you want to think a year out and then you want to you want to have a five-year plan right but what you're saying is a lot can change in six months a lot can change in a year a lot can change in five years you have kind of no predictability over what's what can happen from a macro perspective but also you can't control the other individuals that are involved in that equation right and so what you're saying is just focus on the near term focus on the next day focus on the week right correct right. You, you i don't i think it's good to set 
six-month goals, year goals, five-year goals, 10-year goals. I think those are very positive things. I, I think forward thinking and envisioning where you want to be is very positive. But if you stop there, then I think you have very little chance of ever achieving those goals. After you set those goals, then you got to get really local to the time right now and say, what can I do today, tomorrow, and this week that's going to help me move in that direction? That's not going to help me achieve that goal. I'm not going to achieve it this week, but am I moving in the direction of that goal? And I think that long-term goal setting also has to be really flexible because sometimes you can get so locked in on, I want to do this one thing, this one thing, that's all that matters to me, this one thing, this one thing, and opportunity after opportunity is showing up in your life, but you don't see them because you're so laser focused on the one thing. My, my life has branched to so many different directions and I've had opportunities and I feel like I maintained a flexibility um, to be attendant to the opportunities that show up unexpectedly. Got it. So, so you would say, based on that last point there, when you you say, you know, if you if you're too focused, if you're hyper focused on a goal that might be two or three years out, then you're kind of going to ignore the opportunities that come your way along that way, along that path of of getting to that final goal. Would you say that you've generally been more reactive in your own life? in responding to things and like kind of just jumping on opportunities as you see them. Cause that's, that's like, that's a really interesting take actually. It, it has been. And, uh, and that's f- for sure how my life has gone. Like I didn't have a long-term plan to be in the NFL, but when the opportunity showed up in my life, I was ready. And I, I said, yeah, I'll go do that. I didn't, I, I was a journalism major in college working in newspaper journalism. I didn't do any training in TV or radio, but when the opportunity to go into radio and, and TV showed up, I was ready. I, you know, I didn't train to be a, a motivational speaker, but when the opportunity came, I did it. I didn't train to write a book, but when the opportunity, and so for me, that's, we have to find our way, this blend of, we know where we're going, we're trying to get there, but our personal GPS is going, there's going to be detours, there's going to be um, um, interesting side roads that are still going to move in kind of the direction that we're trying to go, but it's a little bit of a departure for the path. And we have to have some mental flexibility to be able to recognize that when it shows up and act on it. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating point, actually, because I've, I've just, I feel like everything I see these days is like, People have ADD. People can't focus on people can't focus on what their main drivers and what their main goal is, um, and they just keep hopping around and trying different things. But that's a really unique take. So, like, what I'd like to understand is like, how did you, you know, so you were a journalism major, um, you played professional football. How did you, how did you, you know, when did the the broadcasting opportunity come about? It came up by I got interviewed in the locker room with the Broncos my rookie year. And I was articulate and I was willing to be interviewed. And so the very next year, I I got invited to be a a regular guest host once a week on a show called Broncos Beat on the CBS uh, network here. And I just said, yes, I didn't have any TV training. I just said, yes. And, you know, I I say yes a lot. Um, I believe in it as a as a kind of a mantra that yes before no. Uh, Yeah, why not? Um, try and and do these things. And I get, you know, that what you're talking about, about people being so scattered that they have no direction and they just jump from this, jump from that, jump to this, jump to that. Um, Yeah, there's there's a danger in doing that too. But I think if you have some overall projection of I'm heading in this direction 
And anything that's still leading me in that direction, I'm going to I'm going to be open to explore that idea. Um, and for me, it kind of comes from I was a running back in the NFL and and running back in college and a running back in high school. So every play starts off with a plan. It's like, Reggie, the quarterback is going to hand you the ball and we want you to run through the B gap. So that's the gap between the guard and the tackle on the right hand side. We are blocking it to create an opening in the defense in that gap. That's where you're going to go. Well, as soon as the snap happens, the defense does whatever they're going to do. He hands me the ball. So should I just stay on the plan that we had? No. Mm -hmm. My job is to react to what happens, ignore the plan. Hey, that B gap is closed. I've got to cut back and go through the A gap. And as soon as I make that cut to go through the A gap, I stop thinking about what the original plan was. It's irrelevant. I'm now in the A gap. And now I'm going upfield and I've got a linebacker. Am I, what am I going to do? Am I going to go left, right, or am I going to lower my shoulder? I decide to go right. As soon as I make that step, I stop thinking about the decisions that have come behind. I don't, I don't spend any time regretting the path that I'm on. I'm just laser focused on this is the path that I've chosen. I got to get as far as I can right now. And I feel like that's a metaphor for the way you have to deal with some of the options that you have in life is that you make a decision, live with it move forward, put your energy into it, get get as much forward progress. Don't take a step and like, well, you know what? I wonder if I should have made a difference. Uh -huh. right there. Uh -huh. Life is going to tackle you. It, it won't wait for you to revisit those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's actually re really where the, where the problem lies, right? Like you, you might have two paths, right? And you decide on one and then you think about, man, would the outcome, would I be in a better position now if I had gone the other way? Right. If I if if I had stuck with with plan A instead of going this different route, would I be in a better position? So that decision fatigue almost kind of puts you in a worse position. Um, yeah. so I think that's a that's a that's a really um, that's a really cool metaphor to apply that to just decision making overall with your with your general life. Right. Yeah. Would you would you say that's kind of been that's kind of been how you've handled things? Yeah, it, it really is. I I have very few regrets doesn't mean, mean that I've made perfect decisions. I mean, there's plenty of decisions that I think, well, if I had it to do over again, I would do it differently. But I also have respect for who I was at the time that I made those decisions. And so the person that I was thought that was the best path and plan A was better than plan B. And so that's where I went. And so to me, to spend a lot of time looking backward, regretting those decisions is a waste of time. You can't change them. So it's really, where am I right now? How do I improve the, my situation from where I am right now? Yeah. Yeah. That's the mindset you need to have. Otherwise you'll, you'll go crazy thinking about decision fatigue. Right. Um, so how does, like, how does, I, I guess my question is playing NFL football, broadcasting, um, being an author, motivational speaker, what's the, you said that, you know, you want to have one overarching goal or one kind of theme for the long term, but you're generally reacting along the way and just thinking of how you can make the best of a certain situation. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, that is fair. So how what's the overall goal with with those, you know, four things that I just mentioned about your career? You know, how do, I, how do they fit together, I guess, is what yeah. I'm trying to get at. I think the common denominator of them is that I want to do things that align with my talents and interests and are opportunities for me to grow. Mm -hmm. And so that's a broad framework 
through which I, I see opportunities that come in the door. So I run a company now called the Gala Team, and we do nonprofit fundraisers. This year we'll do 140 of them here, mostly in the Denver area. And so it's benefit auctioneering. We we are a team of auctioneers who go help nonprofits raise money during their big charity galas. Our company now, I started it in 2013. It was just me. I did six events that year. The next year I did 29. The year after that, I recruited two other auctioneers. We did 52. The next year was 71. And now we're going to do about 140. And we do all of the biggest events in Denver. We do the Denver Health Gala, Children's Hospital, the Denver Zoo, the Denver Symphony, the um, or the Colorado Symphony, the Colorado Ballet, you know, just all of the major events. And how have we been successful at this? Because it's the same to me. I'm looking at what do I do? What can I do that aligns with my my talents and abilities and my interests and it allows me an opportunity to grow? And I feel like this auctioneering business really has I found my true purpose in life that I love helping these nonprofits. I love the the impact that we have on our community. And it uses all of the skills that I've developed over my whole life, my speaking skills, my thinking skills, my decision-making skills, all of that. And so I, you know, I think no one, I wouldn't have predicted if I was setting a 10-year goal for myself, there's no point along the way that I would have predicted become an auctioneer and build a successful auctioneering business. That would have never been on my list but because my mind is open, as soon as this opportunity to learn how to become a, or I, I got to do an, a couple of auctions and I was like, I really like this. And this aligns nicely with what um, my talents are. And I just started doing more of it and I was able to build a business out of it. Could you explain um, what how the auctioneering business works? I'm just, I'm just not super familiar with it. So I think sure. it'd be helpful. Sure. So, so big nonprofits like the, the, uh, Denver Public Schools Foundation. They hold a big charity fundraiser. They invite a thousand people into a ballroom. During that event, they're going to do various types of fundraising. They might have a silent auction, items laid out on a table that you can write down a bid on those items. They um they will might have a live auction where you know somebody's standing up in front saying, "Hey, we're going to sell this this trip to Mexico, and we're mm-hmm. going to start the bidding at a thousand dollars. Now we got two thousand. Now three thousand. And so you have that, and then you have what's called a paddle raiser which is just where we ask people for support. Who'd like to donate $10,000? Raise your paddle if you'd like to do that. Then who'd like to donate 5,000? Then 2,500, then 1,000, and we work our way down. And so those are the three main fundraising elements, uh, night of event fundraising. That's what my company does. We help them um, execute, plan and execute that type of fundraising. Awesome. And and I mean, it sounds like if you're working with so many nonprofits, they're all going to a good cause. So you're kind of, you're, you're, you're doing something that you enjoy and you're doing good in the process of doing so. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So what, um, what skill set was needed for you? And, and you, you said that this was kind of like you finding your passion, right? Going into auctioneering. What skill set um, did you need to, to be successful in this business? And, and which of those were transferable from your previous experiences? So I feel that all of my previous experiences were training me for this particular job, mm-hmm. that um, my, the skills that I need, I need stage and crowd skills. I need to be comfortable on a microphone in front of an audience. I'm doing a live auction and a paddle raiser. It requires a lot of quick thinking and so I and quick decision making. So all of the practice I had in the NFL of the, the ball gets snapped and now you're moving as fast as you can 
and making decisions as fast as you can. And the other guy is also making decisions and you're, you've got to manage that, all of that. I feel like that has trained me uh, for what I do on the stage. My 20 years being in the media business, being on TV has trained me about how to present, how to be clear, how to be concise, how to do all of those things. Um, my business experiences that I've had over since I became an adult have taught me how to start a business, how to run a business, how to manage um, employees. You know, I have a team of 17 people that I'm leading now. Um, and the, the way that I lead my team is all stuff that I learned from coaches in the NFL about teamwork and how you encourage people and how you empower people and how you develop people and how you help them continue to grow and achieve the things that they want to do. And so, yeah, I feel like there's every everything that, that was put into my satchel as I went along, all these lessons that I learned, I'm constantly pulling out of that satchel to apply them to the things that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like it's, it fits really well within your kind of framework of long-term goal, know what I want to do, but reacting along the way, right? Because you're using so many of those skills and you're pulling them out of your satchel, to borrow your words, um, and, and applying them to your, to your latest endeavor. That's exactly yeah. right. Yes. To go back to, I guess, in your career, at what point did you start writing? At what point did you become an author? I, uh, I started writing defensively when I was in um, back like fifth grade. My sister, my older sister would babysit when my parents would go out and she would write these notes about everything that I did. And so she was, you know, I have a younger sister also. So my older sister would babysit me and my younger sister. So she would write these letters that would say, um, Reggie took a Coke out of the fridge, even though I told him he couldn't have one. Reggie turned off the TV when Gwen was trying to watch the TV. Reggie wouldn't go to bed when I told him he was time to go to bed. And so I would just, she'd, she'd say, I'm writing a note to mom and dad. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> so she's writing her note. I go to bed the next day. They might, and when I get up in the morning, my dad is now has this piece of paper and he's like, all right, Reggie. So uh, I hear that you got a Coke without asking for permission. Is that true? I'm like, that was yesterday, dude. I don't remember, but I would get a spanking because of the things that my sister wrote down on this piece of paper. And so I don't really recall doing this. I mean, I was old and I'm old enough to recall it. I vaguely do, but my parents told me about it. They said, I started writing my own letters. And so my, my sister would say, I'm writing a letter to mom and dad. And I would say, I am too. And I'd write my explanation for why I did what I did or who had wronged me. And so my parents said they would come home, they'd have these dueling letters, they would laugh. Well, I got fewer spankings. Um, and you know, for me, I think early on in my life, I understood the power of the written word. I almost from the moment I learned how to read, I was an avid reader, I was an avid writer. Um, I understood that if you can put things down on paper, you can convince people of things. Um, if people put things on paper about you, they can convince other people of things. And so um, I had been passionate about it. I, uh, When I was in sixth or seventh grade, I read the book Roots, and that was like my first real big book. Um, and and so now I still, I'm an avid reader. I read every day. And, um, and then writing books was just kind of a natural um, development out of that. Just my passion for mm-hmm. reading and books led me to write some. Mm-hmm. So you... <laughs> you convincing your parents to give you less bankings because of your writing was ultimately what led you to realize, hmm, maybe there's something to this and how I can go convince people to do certain things. Right, right. I, I, I wrote myself out of some spankings. Yeah, I like it. I like it. That's definitely a unique answer. I haven't heard that one before. Um, 
What were some of the things that you were reading as a kid? You mentioned Roots, but like, what what were you reading as a kid? Fiction, nonfiction. I I was mostly reading fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I all the normal stuff. I I read a whole series, the the Encyclopedia Brown um, series. I love those. My I loved the Nancy Drew series as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't I don't recall exactly uh, all the standard stuff. But I just I just read all the time, just whatever was in mm-hmm. front of me. I was reading it. I asked because it seems like based on I haven't gotten a chance to read your books, but based on what I know, it seems like they're they're pretty varied topics, right? Like they're not all about football, and you know, one of them was about a political commentary from the perspective of an ant colony, right? Um, so I just asked because, because it seems like your, your, your writing style is pretty unique and you're writing these stories from, from different perspectives as well. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. Yeah. And it's, I just, I, if I get interested in something, I, I read a lot about it and then I want to write something about it. And so one of the books I wrote was called, um, fourth and fixed about a crime family fixing NFL games. And I just been learning a lot about the NFL and trying to figure out could, could somebody fix an NFL game? And so then my novel was like, this is how you might do it. Then um, I read all this stuff about um, H- homeowners associations and the conflicts that are happening out there with the people following HOA rules. And so I just read a lot of stuff and then write, wrote a novel called My Wife's Boyfriend and Our Feud with the Highland Ranch Homeowners Association. And, you know, and it was, it was just a funny book about a marriage that's falling apart while they battle with the HOA board. Mm. Um when the Gulf War started um, in with Iraq, in Iraq, and I, I watched a, a a random news conference with George W. Bush, and I just realized watching that news conference, I was like, "Wow, this war is going to happen!" Like enough rhetoric has been said, enough man and material have been moved into the region. This war is going to happen, and it made me really curious about what causes wars to happen, and 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 how do nations know when they're going to go to war? And so that led me to go back to school. I went and got a master's degree in um, global studies from the University of Denver. And I wrote that novel, um, uh, The Colony, a political tale as my master's thesis. Huh. It's an allegory about two tribes of ants, the the um, army ants of the Alpha Z tribe mm-hmm. and the leafcutter ants of Antistan. And it's how the Alpha Z attacks Antistan and gets control of this fungus that they grow deep below below their mounds. And they can't just go in and take it. They've got to subjugate this mound and get them to keep producing it so they can keep taking it. Um, And so it's just a a metaphor about how the powerful nations in the world dominate the weaker nations. I, I like the name Antistan. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's very fitting for uh, for for where your inspiration came about. Right, right, yeah. exactly. So it sounds like you you really just believe in like you know if there's anything that I'm curious about, I will I will just dive right in and and try to learn about it. Yeah, that's and I don't. Yeah, I think that's I think that's awesome, and I think that's that's a lesson that um, the audience and I can can definitely take something away from, right? Because a lot of times, if you're curious you get bogged down in what you're doing day to day and you just forget to spend enough time on it. So I really, I really commend you for going back to school. And and what was it again that you studied political, political science, global studies, global is science. international studies, basically. And and where did you um, go back to school? University of Denver. Okay. I see. Yeah. And, um, and you, this wasn't, this wasn't the first book you had written. You'd written a book about um, NFL's NFL games being fixed potentially. Right. 
Is that based on a true story? What was that inspired by? No, it wasn't based on a true story, but it is based on a true potential. Um, the NFL has an organization called NFL Security, made up mostly of former FBI agents, and their sole job is to make sure that the game is is clean, that criminal interests aren't influencing the outcome of games. Well, as soon as I learned that they existed, I was like, wow. And I, I became friends with the Broncos NFL security guy. I'd sit next to him on the plane when we were traveling. I'd sit next to him in the cafeteria and we were eating. And I was just peppering him with questions all the time. You know, mm-hmm. what did what you do in the NFL? Or, I'm sorry, in the FBI? And, and what kind of things that are you guys looking for? And I was just fascinated by it to the point that um, I told him, I want to write a book about this. And that, that became that book. And this was while you were, while you were playing for the Broncos? It was, I, the book was published after my career was over, but yes, uh-huh. the research for it started while I was playing. That's really cool. That's really cool. I, I would imagine, I, I mean, don't get, I mean, I've never been a professional athlete in my life or anything like that, not even close, but I would imagine a lot of people weren't spending their time um, peppering these guys with questions. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, it's a lot like you, is, is your name pronounced Arjun? Arjun. Yep. Arjun. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot like you. So you've got this podcast and I can tell from talking to you, you're a curious person. Um, you are curious about many different things and you started this podcast and you interview people and you you um, prick your curiosity and you you learn things. And so to me, that's, that's all that I have. And I, I feel like being curious is one of the most valuable traits that we can have as human beings because mm-hmm. it will lead you so many places. A lack of curiosity will just kind of leave you stuck where you are. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head with, with the whole, the entire reason I'm doing this thing in the first place, right. It's just like genuinely curious about a variety of things and I have a hard time picking one of them. So I figured I'd just reach out to people like you and try to have them explain uh, little bits of it to me. So. I, I appreciate it. To your point on curiosity and how that can be a good driver of a purposeful life, right? What I wanted to ask you is, have you ever been, I guess, what are your motivations? Have you ever been motivated by money? I mean, you've clearly done very well for yourself, but have you ever been motivated by money or status or anything? Or what have your, what have your motivations been? Has it, has it genuinely just been, I'm curious about this. I'm going to go learn from it and, and react to whatever opportunities come my way. It sounds like that's what it is, but that's, that's a large part of it. Of course, I'm somewhat motivated by money, um, yeah. you know, but I, I feel like it was a blessing for me that I was in the NFL. My first job out of college was in the NFL and it helped me understand I'm not, I'm not motivated by money. I like making money, but the money itself isn't motivating enough once you get beyond, if you have enough money to take care of, of your basic needs and the things that you want, it, it becomes less and less meaningful. And I know that's, you know, it's a ridiculous thing to say, because I know so many people need money. But um, but for me, it's like, I need to find things that give me meaning. And when I started my auction business, for example, I was doing keynote presentations for corporations at where there to them, money is is a you know I'm, I'm not even really negotiating with them. I tell them a price, they say okay. Yeah. Um, What's to, the number? Yeah, exactly. To now, I'm going to do this work with nonprofits who have these really tight budgets. And the first year of my uh, business, you know, I'm I'm generating hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue in the events that I'm doing. 
um, that, that I'm personally performing, but I only paid myself a salary of $37,000. Mm-hmm. The first year I started my business, my wife was like, hey, wait a second. I mean, you're you're going to stop doing these corporate events and start doing this? And it was like, yeah, because this is I'm really passionate about this. And then the next year I paid myself about $50,000. And, you know, and, and it's grown over time, but I still don't pay myself a ton of money. And I'm I am transparent with my my team. We look at our financials every week, every Monday. We look at our bank balances, our balance sheet, all of that together as a team. They see my salary at the end of the year. And it's important for me to show them through my actions that, yeah, I am not taking the resources of the company and just putting them in my pocket. I'm paying myself a reasonable salary that's commensurate with the salaries that that they're making. And we're in this together. We're trying to make a difference in the world. And so for me, it was I, I had a chance to learn early that money is important. You have to have money to have security, but money isn't the thing that motivates me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, I, I really like, I really uh, can appreciate the transparency because I've definitely heard a lot of people saying similar things, but in practice, um, you know, their employees might, or their employees or people that they're surrounded by or, or whoever works for them might not feel the same way because you have no idea how much they're making or you know they're making a ridiculous amount of money and you're getting paid by the hour to do things that are bringing them a ton of value right so um i really appreciate that i bet that that certainly motivates people to want to you know stay stay with the company and and kind of focus on the um the end goal if you will yeah it it removes a distraction and i and i think that that's true and that's why i started doing it because um you know we're successful but we're, you know, we're running on a pretty small margin. You know, we're, we don't charge these nonprofits a lot of money. And so uh, about four years ago, I just said, you know what, I should just open this up unless every Monday we, we have a report that we look at and it every, you know, all of our full-time employees participate and we just look at the numbers. And so they see it every week, they know what it is, and it has just removed a distraction from our company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned that at an early age, you you learned that money was obviously important, right? Like no one's going to sit here and tell you that money is not important, especially when things are as expensive as they are today. Money is absolutely important, but you learned that it shouldn't be your primary motivator. Um, so what I guess what I'm getting at is how did you how did you learn that? How did you did did were you was that a value that you were taught growing up? Yeah, I think it was a value that I was taught um, growing up. And we, you know, we didn't have much money when I was growing up. When I got in the NFL, um, I laid, I made the league minimum every year, but I felt like I was rich. You know, my my rookie year, I made seventy thousand dollars. That was the league minimum, and I was like, "Wow, they're gonna, they're paying me seventy thousand dollars just to play football." And then the next year, I made one hundred and twenty five thousand. Um, the most I ever made in any one year was three hundred thousand dollars, and I just. I just felt like I am so blessed to be making the money that I'm making. It's not the millions that my teammates were making, but but I felt like, man, this is I'm lucky at this young age to be able to make this money. And and it I started to understand I like the money and I, you know, I like having this nest egg, but the money itself doesn't move me. And so I started doing things in the community. I started volunteering with all these charities um, and to just start to find a meaning, a purpose. How how can I do something that makes me feel like I'm making a difference? Because over here, just playing football and getting paid a lot of money for it doesn't feel very meaningful to me. It feels pretty shallow. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 I'm aware of the reality. Only rich people can say that money doesn't matter because <laughs> they've already solved all their money problems. Yeah, and, and that's yep. and that's true. I want to be rec- cognizant of that, but but it is also to understand that once you get beyond meeting your needs, mm. yeah, the 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 more money um, often doesn't create more happiness. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome too. Especially like you know you you mentioned. When you said seventy thousand, a hundred, one hundred fifty thousand, and three hundred thousand, that's like a tenth of what I would have imagined you were making as right. an NFL player. Right. But that's still a lot of money, right? Like three hundred thousand dollars is quite a bit of money. Um, and clearly, your your motivation was to find something that was purposeful to you that 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 you felt fulfillment in. Yeah. Um, so, from a young person's perspective, and this is something that you know, people my age or, or my friends would always ask. And like, how did you find what was your, your purpose? How did you find something that was pur- purposeful to you where, you know, you would make money as a byproduct of your curiosity and, and just going after something that you're genuinely passionate about? How did you find that thing? And how should, how should people look to do the same in their own lives? So that is a very good question. It's a loaded, uh... loaded question for sure. <laughs> yeah. You're it the is. job. Right. Um, yeah, it, I, I think that I knew that I had, um, I'm a communicator at heart, whether it's writing TV, um, radio, whatever it is, I'm that's at a, at a very basic level. That's who I am. I'm a communicator. Mm -hmm. And so I continually sought out opportunities where I could communicate. And if I could get paid for it as well, it's like, Hey, great. Now I'm doing this thing that I love to do. Um, and I'm and I'm making a living at it. Um, I, I think that we have seen in this generation, the the generation. You know, my son's eighteen. I don't. How old are you? Twenty eight ish. Twenty six. Okay, twenty six. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, you're you're in. I put you in the generation with my son, and you know, everybody up to say thirty five. I am blown away by how creative your generation is, and the things that they have come up with. I mean. We we have now. You look at the landscape of the the wealthiest companies in the world, and it's it's Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, you know that v- businesses that didn't exist twenty five years ago are now the biggest businesses on the planet. We have Uber and Lyft, and you know all of these all these apps and all these you know TikTok and things that people create, and then people who make their living as content producers that mm-hmm. they're on YouTube playing a video game and doing it with such interesting commentary that people want to follow them and watch them play this video game are people who, who are influencers about makeup or how to do your hair or whatever it is. When I watch some of these things on YouTube, I'm just like blown away by the creativity and the uh, ability to turn their passion into a way for them to make money. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, to your point, like the universe of potential careers has, has gotten a lot broader than it was probably, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago. Um, Like people are literally sitting at home streaming Twitch video games and providing commentary and they're making a killing doing it just by being themselves. Right. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see. It is. It really is. 
um, is your son, is your son like you, is he a communicator? Is he extroverted? Does he kind of have, does he kind of have your personality traits? No, he doesn't. Yeah. If he's not, he's not, um, a communicator, he's, um, he's a pretty good football player yeah. and he's, we're hoping he's going to be heading off to college in the fall, but he's really good with his hands. He's very smart. He's, he's, um, you know, mathematically he's, he's very smart. He's, he, he still doesn't know his times tables, but if you ask right. him to figure right. out the, if you ask him to figure out the volume of a pyramid, he, he can do that, and that's that's easy for him. And so it'll be interesting to see what he does, but it'll be different yeah. than what I've done. Yep, yep, absolutely. So you're you're not necessarily kind of guiding him or putting him on a path. You're kind of just you know giving him guardrails, so to speak, and just letting him go wherever yeah. he goes. Right. It's yeah. like. Where does his talents and interest line up and what can he do with that? And so, you know, we want to help direct him as much as we can toward positive outlets for whatever talents he has. But beyond that, it's like, yeah, whatever he chooses in his life, we just want him to be successful and happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I did want to transition back to the, the topic of goal setting, just because, you know, obviously coming from somebody who's very accomplished and successful in their own career and is kind of known for being a goal setting and, and kind of behavior changing guy. Um, how do you, when people approach you and ask you, you know, and, and they tell you that they struggle with motivation, like what are, what are your, what's your advice for people who struggle with, with motivation and discipline? The, the single simplest thing that I think any of us can do. And I'm, I'm, I'm subject to this too. I like, let's not make it out that every goal that I set for myself, I'm just so disciplined and I, I go out and do it. I mean, I have a goal to lose weight and I don't do it. So, you know, let's, let's be realistic. But the single simplest thing is shorten your timeline. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, people get demoralized because they say, I want to lose 20 pounds. And so then they start eating, they're eating a salad and they're drinking water and they're doing everything. And um, if they don't lose, if they don't start losing right away, they just get demoralized. And I say, set your target shorter. Your goal is to win 20, lose 20 pounds. Great. That's your goal. You wrote it down. Now forget about that. Today, you're going to eat a salad. You're going to drink nothing but water, no sodas. You're going to um, have a healthy dinner and you're not going to eat anything after 8 p.m. That's what you're going to do today. And when you get to the end of today and when you've done that, you should celebrate your success because you did that today yourself. And when you wake up tomorrow, you're only going to decide, what am I going to do today? When that brownie shows up at, at lunch, you can say no to any one brownie, right? You can say, that, hey, listen, brownie, you go free. You're not, not today. <laughs> not today. <laughs> I am setting you free. If your cousin shows up at dinner, I can't make any promises. But this one, I'm setting you free. And mm -hmm. you said no to that brownie and you should give yourself a pat on the back. That's success. That these little things, you have to start celebrating the process, not just the outcome. And businesses know this. Businesses have long-term goals, but they also understand they have processes that they need to repair. And when they make a repair to their process, they celebrate that. Yeah, we just fixed that thing. And they know that that process is then going to fix their long-term goal or help them achieve their long-term goal. We as human individual human beings need to adopt that more and celebrate the small victories. Mm -hmm. Celebrate the small victories. Be more focused on on the short term with your long term mindset. 
Correct. Um, in conjunction with your long-term mindset. Correct. Yeah. I like it. I like it. This is definitely, you know, contrary to conventional wisdom, but I think, I think it could work for a lot of people. Um, and I, I really appreciate your time today. Well, it's a really enjoyable experience um, because you are a genuinely curious person and you're a, a great interviewer. You're a great listener. Um, I could tell you're a good salesperson because um, I can tell that you listen to your clients. And uh, and yeah, it's, it's a very enjoyable experience to be on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Reggie. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. For sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Awesome. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot.